morning worship service. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior. I was away this week some. I had a conference with the Mid-Atlantic down in Lancaster, or New Haven Church. And I was reminded of me being on this side of it. To bring to you the Word of God. Not for me to have a sermon for you, but that you would want to come and hear what the Bible has. And it's a responsibility of the minister to do that. Two weeks ago, I shared things from Romans chapter 7. Not sure how many of you were here. <clears throat> and in my mind, I figured the next uh, time I'm scheduled to preach, I'll preach from Romans chapter 8. And that's what we are going to do this morning. And for a title, I have more than conquerors. But in Romans chapter 7, for any of you that weren't here, Especially the two last verses of chapter 7, which we'll read here. We, but throughout the chapter, we had how to identify the law, and what the law is, and what is sin, and how that affects us. And, and in the conclusion here in verse 20 or 24 of chapter 7, it says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And he kind of ends there and he says, so you're stuck in this body that has this battle and this war that goes on, the flesh and the, the, the Spirit of God, the two just continuing to go back and forth. And chapter 8, gives us a little bit of hope, would you say, and how to deal with this. So in, in, you know, as you think about the mind, and a lot of things take place in your mind, and if I, I asked uh, what the message was last Sunday, and it was interesting to hear, if I understood right, Jay Burkholder preached about the mind, and a lot goes on in your mind. And for the most part, that's where the battle takes place, where the, where the uh, war is, the, the, the back and the forth, the temptations, the things we, things we face as Christians. But as we read in chapter 8, and my notes go all the way through chapter 8 to verse 39, I'm not sure if I'll touch on every verse, but I would like to at least try to help understand for all of us what's in this chapter. So when I say a number, I'm referring to the verse, if it's 25 or 3 or, or what I might say, it's as we go down through here. Um, I might not say verse every time, but you just assume that it's the verse given in chapter 8. <clears throat> and so we start right in. Let's begin in in. Romans chapter 8, I'm not going to read the, the passage, I'm just going to jump in. 
It, it comes through a little bit more of story type as we build from one verse, one verse to the next. And so um, just try to, try to follow along. I tend to go pretty quick, and some of these I don't have much for each verse, and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to maybe uh, move through the verses fairly, fairly quickly. Verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. He begins right away with the flesh and the spirit contradiction. But do you know this morning that you do not have to be condemned because you're in a body of flesh? And that condemnation would be, understanding the word, is that there's a sentence pronounced on you. That you're judged, that you are in a court setting that says, you're going to jail, or you're going to do this or that. And along with the condemnation, it is suggested that there's a punishment that's going to follow that. And it says here, now there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If you were not walking after the Spirit, there probably would be condemnation in your life. Some of you know. So condemnation is one word that comes through here a little bit. And just to um, remember that as we go. Uh, verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. So here the law comes out. The law of the Spirit of life is in Jesus Christ, and it frees us from the law of sin and death. In three, it has, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Some new thoughts for me in the fact of God wanting us to live holy lives, sets the law up, as we heard about in seven, and here it says the law was weak. And if you think about it, the law tried to do all that it could. It was written right there. It said, this is what you do. And if you broke the law, the law was done. It could not do anything more to help you try to be, live a holy life. The law was, was uh, it's like its hands are tied. The law could not do anymore. It did what it was, <clears throat> what it was told to. So if you broke the law, the law could do nothing to restore you back to God. And so that's why it says about the Son was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not sinful flesh. He was treated and crucified as if he was sinful flesh. This condemned sin in the flesh. And it's like my mind got halfway through that. Because for a long time, I could not, besides the element of faith, Christ just died on the cross and took care of your sins. But why? What did that really matter? And this verse points to about condemning sin in the flesh. And that's what Jesus did when he died in the flesh on the cross. Part of that um, condemning sin in the flesh. And in four, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Now we can meet the requirements of the law if we walk after the spirit. goes back a little bit to what 
Jesus uh, was able to do in that we couldn't um, fully obey the law, and, and now we can. And in 5 it says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. It's just very, very simple there of what your mind is on, but when it says, uh, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things, that basically, in, in understanding what mind would mean, this is to set your mind on. See, it's what you think about, but it's also how you would purpose or what you're going to set your mind to do. <clears throat> and it says, for they that are after the flesh would set their mind on the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit would set their mind on the things of the Spirit. And in 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. If you set your mind on the flesh, that's death. If you set your mind on the Spirit, it's interestingly two things. It's the life and peace. It's like there's a benefit there. It's not just life, but there's also things that come with it. It says there's life and peace. And in 7, it says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And so, uh, just to sum it here, the sinful mind is hostile to God. This mind is not subject, nor ever will be subject to God. Verse 8, So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's pretty simple to understand. If you are in the flesh, you cannot please God. So if you're wondering, if you're pleasing God in your walk with Him, just ask yourself if you're in the flesh. Verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So if the Spirit of God is living in you, you're controlled by the Spirit and not the sinful natures. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. That is the only way you will be a Christian is to have the Spirit of Christ in you. And in 10, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. This is one was a little hard for me. If Christ be in you, the body is dead. It wasn't hard for me. It was hard for a lot of other ones as I tried to understand. I don't quite totally know when it says, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead. I think the spiritual body, spiritual part of us is dead, but physically we're still alive, as you know. Even with Christ in us, our body is dead due to the fact that all have sinned. So the wages of sin is death, and that's all of us have, are, are in that. But the spirit of life, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. And the power that was given that Jesus rose from the dead 
can be part of us. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us and gives us the life. And we can be alive even in this mortal body. Continuing on, 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. And when it says debtors, it means uh, maybe an easier word is we don't have any obligation. There is no, um, like, no reason that we have to do it. it it's, we can uh, go the other direction. We're not tied to it. We're not debt to it. It says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. And flesh is the sinful nature in us. Verse 13, for if, we, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Living after the flesh brings death. But if we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, then we will live. 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And just once you note the progression it goes on. Some of this is old and repetitive. You understand it, you know it. But think about what's, what we're leading up to. Kind of where, where Paul is trying to bring all this through. And in 14 here, we get to the part about, For as many are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. To be a son of God, you must be led by the Spirit. In Acts 17.29 it states, we are his offspring. Now this starts getting a little harder when you think about family and the connection of husband, wife, children, the interaction there. And when it says we are his offspring, that's, that's talking about a race or a family, like a group of people that you, know, you identify with. And... Just keeping going into 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. This verse is one you've heard a lot and know of it. But just point out the, uh, the idea that it's not a spirit of bondage. It's a spirit of slavery. See, that was the spirit you had when you lived in the flesh. But now when you become... A child of God, <clears throat> you receive not only the recommendation from the Father, but you, it's the, what it calls here the spirit of adoption. Not only do you have your right to that, but it's not even slavery, as you know how family works. And you have the privilege of calling out to our Father, an Abba father would be like, uh, like we would say dad, daddy, or um, a, a close term of endearment maybe, or something that you are very comfortable with. And a slave can't do that. A slave cannot go to its master and say, hey dad, can I go this or this or this? There, there's too much of a distance. There's a, there's a gap there. And so that is changed as we become sons of God. 16, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit of God testifies that we're His children. That's coming from the other side of it. 
the Holy Spirit says, there, there, those are my children, right there. I see them and I identify them. And the, a reference came to my mind, I'm not going to turn to it. And it's, it's one of those things, we, we study in Ecclesiastes and how Solomon wrote those things. His first encounter as king, I think it was his first one, were these two women, as you know the story, that had a child. They each had a child and one died. And they kept arguing who is the mother of the other one. And I always thought that's this great story of how Solomon could be wise and how he figured it out. But did you ever think about how he knew the mother could tell which one was, his, was her child? There was just no arguing. When that sword came out to say, cut that child in half, there was no doubt in that woman's mind that that is my child and she didn't want that happening. The other woman actually said, go ahead. Can you find, see the tie there between a mother and their child? And if I understand here, it says the spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And the spirit has that connection with us as, as Christians. 17, as children then, we're heirs of God. But it says, if we share in his suffering. Sorry, I didn't read the verse. 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be also glorified together. As I said about as, as a child, then we can be children of God, then we're the heirs of God. And we can share in his, if you jump ahead, his glory, the great things. But you forgot something in here as we, as we see it. It says that if so be that we may suffer with him. Suffering is no fun. And it puts us back in that mindset of serving the flesh and serving the spirit. But if we are to be heirs with him, it says, if so be that we may suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And there's a, there's, there's a connection there between suffering and glorifying, being glorified. 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The now and the future are not worth comparing as I was talking in 17, the suffering and the glory aren't really to be compared. You, you just can't take the sufferings of, you know, the, the people on earth, stories we hear of, even current events of people suffering. In a physical sense, suffering, hunger, cold, destitute of whatever humanitarian needs that we all have so Abundantly here. Suffering in a, in a physical sense. How can you compare that to the glory which shall be revealed in us in a future sense? And it continues on in this part that creation. And, and I really don't understand all this. But verse 19. 
For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. So just take creature there and just put creation in there. I think that's okay to do that. It's all the, what I can find in my references. It's talking about creation. And how creation waits for the manifestation of these sons of God. Did, I don't know if I'll get it all, maybe confuse you more. Who do you live with? Besides people, who do you live with? What else is around us? Creation. Animals. Plants. How can they be waiting for us as humans to be glorified? How can they be... be we were taught that animals don't have a soul. Yes, they do have a mind. They can think a little bit. Plants are just plants. The earth, creation, everything that is, is involved in creation waiteth for the manifestation, the, the revealing of, of this, these the sons of God. You know, what we're going to be when it says about compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. I, I, don't, I never thought of creation as waiting for that. And there's even more, more in the next verse here. So, But creation is waiting for the time when it will be no longer under the curse. Creation will know it when the sons of God will be revealed. And in 20, for the creation, sorry, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. I'm not sure if I have much on this, but creation is in a state of corruption or decay, and it looks for the glorious freedom of the children of God. I think I have it later on. Maybe I'm jumping ahead here. But do you, you know the prophecy about the lion and the lamb laying down together? And I didn't think about this, but was that the way creation was before the fall? Now, like I say, I'm jumping ahead. In my notes, I think, or if not, before I forget about it. So when mankind fell and left that perfect relationship, how could creation continue on in the same manner that it was? I never really thought about that the fact that we sinned, creation had to be subjected as well. But creation didn't do anything wrong. Maybe that's how it knows that we were, we're, the, we're the problem. It's just waiting, but I still can't think, how, how do animals know that? How do the plants and trees, how are they going to know that? I, some new thoughts to me. I, but you can't ignore it. God created the heaven and the earth, and these are the things around us. As you read in Genesis 1. Verse 22 now I should uh, let me sure, make sure I got verse 21. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. I might have got my notes a little bit uh, ahead there. But that is um, where creation is. It's in a subject decay, and it's still waiting for that, what's to come. Because verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. 
I just didn't put that connection together of creation, why, why creation is growing. This verse is one you'd, you'd hear of quite a bit. But how you can put that in the middle of this uh, life of the flesh and life of the spirit. Like, what's creation have to do with it? But Paul brings us in and says that creation is right there with us. As we wait to be, uh, uh, the Lord comes back, a new body, some of these things we don't know about. Creation is going to be part of that. It's going to, it's going to come back together. And it's groaning. In verse 22, groan if you never knew what groan could mean, it can mean a groan like a normal groan when somebody has a problem and they're groaning. But it could also mean a sigh. And I like that one a little bit better, me personally. Because when somebody sighs, you're just not sure what's going on in their mind. And in some cases, they can't even explain themselves when they just go, they just give a sigh. And like, you can't get it. And we might see that here a little bit later. But like they're, they're waiting. And the creation may be groaning, but it could be uh, brought out in that way. 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. And these things, like I say, they, they get up. I, I get pretty in pretty far that I, I can't understand it all. But we also are waiting for the redemption of our body. And it's the same word here in groan as in the, in the other one, uh, an inward groan or, or a sigh. 24, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for when I saw this verse was in here, I thought I was going to have to explain to you why we're not saved by hope. Like, if you hope to get to heaven, that's all you need. But you start looking at where this is coming from. We're stuck in this fleshly body that's just no good. But he says, we have hope. And as you know it, we do. We can look ahead to what's coming. And to get technical about the wording in, in 24, um, the other translations would not say we are saved by hope. They would say things like we are saved in this hope. Like the condition where we're at now is where we get saved. <clears throat> and it's not hope itself that saves you. It might stir up a bunch of things. It's, it's, it's hard to say. Does hope save us? No. Hope has to do with the unseen in the future. You look at the definition of hope it's all future. It has to do with what's coming. 25. But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. I thought of trying to come up with examples or how to, how to do this hope, but and I think we'll just leave it. But if you know there's something coming, it sure gives you a lot more patience to wait for it. Now, you still want it, and it's still... but. You know it's out there. You know it's coming. Gives you a little bit of a, how's it called in here? Then do we with patience wait for it. That's what hope does for us. We believe the promises of the future. Then we'll, we will wait for them with perseverance. That, um, I think, brought out in that word patience maybe. 
not that one, uh, the patience and the weight, both of them are pretty, um, there's some wording behind that that gives, uh, explains it better. I don't have it down. 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Another one of these verses is like, what does this mean? I'm still not quite sure, but as we uh, try to break the verse down a little bit, it starts out with likewise, or in the same way. And I look back and I said, well, in the same way, the same way as what? What was before? And I really am not sure if it's hope, if that's what's talking about it. Likewise, the Spirit also help, help with our infirmities. Is it hope? Or is it maybe the way the Father helps the Son, as we read about in um, 15 and 16, about being children of God? Does, is, is, is it part of that way? But likewise, in, what, in, in the same way as whatever was before, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now the word infirmity is simply weakness. And I'm not so sure as it's a physical weakness as it much as it could be a, uh, a spiritual weakness. And when you think about verse 16, I'll just throw this in yet. The Spirit testifies that we are God's children. I think that, you know, to, to look at it fair and square, is it God that helps us or the Holy Spirit that helps us? I think two of those come together to help us. So when it says about the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, part of that likewise, if I backtrack a little bit here, that we have help from God. We have help from the Trinity. Whichever part of it it is, uh, is there to help us. But infirmities means this weakness and, and a spiritual weakness. <clears throat> and I really wrestle with how much does the Holy Spirit live inside of me and help me? And I put down here... Uh, that it's more than I realize. Because as Christians, His Spirit's in us. And I think it does more for us than we think about. And if you want to use, uh, I put down, do I realize the influence and control that the Holy Spirit has in my life? And I need to take a hold of that, the advantage, the blessing of that, and to give us direction and guidance in our lives. But as we look at the verse, does the Holy Spirit pray for us? Um, it maketh intercession for us with groanings which that cannot be uttered. I wish I'd give you a clear understanding of what that is. But the few faint things that I, I come across in reading is the Spirit itself does not pray for us. But when it comes too weak, when we become too weak and we just can't make it, the Holy Spirit comes beside and takes whatever we have and lifts it up to the Father. And the reason I say that is, is because, well, let me just write, let me just read what I have. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us in our weakness and takes the intention and the will of the heart with a sigh or a groan of compassion, helps bring them to the Father. 
that word is only used either one or two times in Scripture about, uh, actually I'm not even sure which word it is, but the only reference that I got was to when Martha asked Mary for help when Jesus was there at their house. And Martha was bogged down, she was too much gone, and she says, Mary, I need some help. That's exactly the, what the uh, example is to be given in this as well. Going off of how the words, and it makes sense. When Martha couldn't help, she says, or when Martha was just too busy, she said, Mary, come help me. Maybe Mary didn't then, I'm not sure, but the idea was is that Martha needed help. And if Mary would have helped, she would have came, she would have continued in the work. She wouldn't have done the work for him, for, but she would have came along and aided and helped. Now, I can't help you with how it says, maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I, I just have to leave that. However that takes place, I'm not sure. Verse 27, God is the one who searches the heart. Let's read it. It says, and he searcheth the hearts, and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And I try to think down through this, how it all is, but it basically comes back to God is the one who searches the hearts. That's God. But God and the Spirit are together, a trinity, but the Spirit, or God knows the mind of the Spirit, but the Spirit's the one that comes to our aid and helps us the way God Himself would. It just kind of goes around and it, it all comes back. And that's how the Holy Spirit can help us. What does it say about maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God, the desire of God, what God would want. That's what the Spirit's going to do because the Spirit is God. But it's just broken out in a couple different ways. Okay, going on to 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. A very familiar verse. And you know it. You understand it. But I want to take something out of here that I could just learn and share it with you. As you go through your life in progression, that you take all these things and you're like, the next thing, this will work for God, this will work for God, the next thing, this is, these things are all going to work for God, or for the good. That word know in there means that you know it right now, 100%, and it's not going to change. It's not a growing, uh, you know, from, from one event to another. you got to, and it might be, you know, just little, but in my mind... It was kind of, uh, help me understand this verse. And we know that all things work together for good. There's no questioning about it. And you know it now as full as you ever will. That you know that all these things will work together for good. To work to them that love God. To them who are called according to his purpose. And it is a sacrificial love used there as well. To them that love God. You must be having a sacrificial love for your life, surrendering your things to God. That is the ones that He will He will help and and do. Um, verse twenty nine and thirty are probably fit for a sermon just in themselves about predestination and foreknowing. I did not study and 
and give that. I figured I had enough the way it is. And so I don't have anything on 29 and 30. I'll just read them for sake of Scripture, just to hear it, for you to hear it again. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be, for, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? What's the response to all this? All these verses. What shall we say then? If God's for us, who can be against us? 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The things that God gave to the risen son, will he not also give to us? I think that was alluded to earlier, at least similar, similar idea to that. 33. Who shall, lay, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who's going to uh, bring any of these things against us? This kind of goes back to the, the, you know, the verses in chapter 7 and, and all these um, you know, failures of law and all this. But who is going to lay charges against us? It's not God. It's not the Holy Spirit. It, it's pretty obvious that what we have... It's Satan. The one that charges, accuses us is Satan. It's the devil. It's the enemy. And then it says, It is God that justifieth. Um, that justifieth would mean that it's God that declares righteous. And if you're a son of God, he'll, he'll know if you're righteous or not. 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. There's a question mark in that phrase there, or the first part. Who is he that condemneth? You know, who does? Who's doing the condemning in your life? Could be a little bit hard to figure out, but there is no condemnation if you are in Christ. Go back to verse 1. So if you're wrestling with being condemned about something, which in my life at times and still is, I, I don't know where condemnation comes from at times. But if you are in Christ, it's not going to be, it's not going to be from Him. And it says in this verse, uh, you know, it puts a question mark. But instead of trying to answer, who is he that condemneth, it switches it to the other side. And it says, it is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That's not the one that condemns us. And continuing into 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Here's some of these physical things that we know of and hear of. But who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I put down a new definition for love as I looked at these verses. Got it in highlight, highlight here. Can't even find it. Love. Jesus died. He rose. And he intercedes. Right there. Who shall separate us from the love of God? 
put it in a new new way for me. How and because the word love is not used at all before, and all of a sudden it says, "Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?" Where's like, where's where's the love come from? Thirty six, as it is written, "For thy sake, we are killed all the day long; we are counted as sheep for the slaughter." You know, there's people in this world that feel probably like sheep getting ready to kill, be killed, and that happens to us some days too. I think we just feel like we're getting slaughtered. Uh, yeah, it uses that word, slaughter. Sheep for the slaughter. But spiritually, we are not that way. And we don't have to feel that way spiritually. Because of the love that Jesus had. He died, He rose, and He intercedes. And the Holy Spirit helps us. We do not spiritually have to be, and we should not be, feeling like that we're being slaughtered. Because in verse... Uh, 36 references back to Psalm 44:22, and there's, there's a number of things. I'm not going to go and read it, but there's some more to do with how he was feeling at that time. But verse 37 gets to, if you want to say our text verse, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And that word love comes back at us again here. And we realize that Jesus dying, rising, and interceding for us is his love and that this says we are more than conquerors. And it's because of the love of God, and, it's bec- and, and even more than conquerors. So what's a conqueror? Is, is we know of somebody that can uh, overcomes and, and gains something. But as we see... Um, There's, there's things in Revelation about overcoming. And it's hard for me to get it a little bit because this word is where I really went to way back when I wanted to uh, study into something for a sermon. And I thought there was more words about conquerors in the Bible, but there isn't. I think this is the only time that, at least this specific word maybe, that we're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And if you can get your mind through all this rambling that I had here, of what took place through all these verses in, in chapter 8. All these things that Paul said. Can you see that you are now more than a conqueror in Christ through His love? It's really hard for me to tap into that power that's there. That we can be more than conquerors. 38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, just jumping into 39, nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it says about separating from the love of God. Just repeats it kind of as what it was in, the, in verse 35. But as you see all these things, and part of the... The idea behind trying to understand all this is that in our lives, you separate the flesh and the spirit. That in the spirit, there is nothing that will separate. It's so basic and yet so, still so complicated or so uh, complex. There's, there's a lot with that. We read Faith of Our Fathers. If you were sitting in, and it said about chained in, in prison walls... And yet they were free in conscience. That's what 
when I read that phrase, I said, yes, that goes along with what this is saying. You can sit in the worst physical condition possible on this, on this earth and be free and clear and not be, gypped ain't the right word, but you're not gypped of any of the love of God. Like there's no situation or place you can be in. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But this does not remove the war that is in us. And just my closing uh, comment here about with these conquerors. It's, it's you, you can overcome. We are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. We can be, be we can be on the winning side of the war that has already been won. That's just the way it is. We know that the war's won, isn't it? So we can be part of that. We can be more than conquerors because in some ways it's already been conquered. And so that is my Revelation, trying to just bring these verses out in your life as you go from here. How to walk with God, the flesh, the spirit. And that if nothing else, if whatever comes in your life, you, you can't run against it and say, just too much, I can't, I can't do this. Start reading. Yes, it's hard, the flesh is going to give you all those things, but... It, we have it here. And one little side note, um, maybe something you could hold me accountable to, is, is that when I'm working on a problem in my life, and we might say, I got some things to work through, and maybe you would eventually say, well, I got through that problem, or I worked through that problem. my mind that we need to switch that around somehow and realize that when you were so low and you couldn't do anything it was the Holy Spirit it was God who came and helped you and lifted you up and when we turn around and say well I, I bringing out this the pride I worked through this problem I need to remember that I couldn't do it there was no way I could and so Help me remember to be giving God the honor and the glory, the Holy Spirit, the, the things that help us. It's, that's, where, that's where it comes from. So I challenge you this week to continue or to be more than conquerors in Christ. I think we'll stand for closing prayer at this time.